Hello, and welcome to Shot List, where we talk about how to make a life and a living behind the lens. I'm cinematographer Marshall Chupa, and today I'm speaking with cinematographer and director Aaron Nathanson. In this episode, Aaron and I talk about his freelance journey and how he began to build a portfolio of work in the beginning while overseas with very few resources. How he began to meet people and start to make a name for himself despite moving to Vancouver knowing no one, when to buy a camera, and do you really need one to become successful in this career, and a few tips and tricks he's learned along the way for creating meaningful work. This was a fun chat with Aaron, as him and I are on similar paths and points in our freelance careers as cinematographers and pursuing a life and a living behind the lens. Let's jump into it. Well, Aaron, thanks so much for coming on the podcast today. I appreciate your time. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I think we've been just in communication through, I think, DMs on Instagram and uh, mm-hmm. kind of playing a similar sandbox, um, you know, both chasing commercial cinematography in and around Vancouver. Uh, is that right? Yeah, yeah. I think most of my work occurs here for sure. But I mean, I, I just got back from like a month of travel. So you know how it is. Sometimes you're away for a long time. But yeah, Vancouver's where it's at, dude. And this podcast is kind of aimed towards you know, helping the younger self, or at least the way I like to see it is that myself, when I was just getting started, didn't have a lot of opportunity for finding the right resources or even just hearing people's journey stories were super helpful, grabbing coffee and beer. And I honestly had so many of these coffee and beer conversations that I was like, damn, this should be a podcast. So um, this is kind of what I hope to speak to in this episode specifically is kind of some of the tips and tricks and journey story of yourself and how things are just going in day to day and where you hope to head. Where do things start for you? I don't know where really where the start start point is, but I've I've had a camera in my hand ever since I was, you know, in high school. Like but I never uh, I just enjoyed it, right? Like I liked taking photos. Stills photography was like a big part of my life. Long and short of it is, uh, I moved, I lived in Japan for uh, years and, um, Japan, uh, I was teaching English as, as, as foreigners do when they live there, but I was living in the countryside. And what that means is that I had to really like be a part of the community there because nobody speaks English. So you're going to have to learn Japanese. You're going to have to try your best to, to do it. Uh, their way, which was always my goal. That was my dream. So my dream was like original dream in life was certainly not to like be a cinematographer or anything like that. I wanted to live in Japan. I had that dream since, since I was young. Um, I thought it'd be really cool. So the reality is when I was in Japan, there's just so many interesting things (laughs) to photograph. You know, first of all, they've got thousands of years of history, architecture, traditions, their culture is so much older than ours here in Canada. I mean, incomparably so. And so mm-hmm. anyway, it was a fascinating subject. So first I had it, this, this incredible subject, which was Japan. Um, but more importantly, I then met people who sort of also liked to do what I did, which was photography, namely my, my current wife now, Lindsay. Um, mm-hmm. we, we met, we met because we we both had cameras in our hands in this in this place in Japan where there were very few other foreigners, but the two of us had like DSLRs, and so uh, we connected through that way. And uh, she was the one who actually pushed me to like t- to take photography a little bit more seriously because she wanted to be a wedding photographer. This was back in 2010, um, and I was like, 
I've never really even been to a wedding. I couldn't possibly imagine what that would be like. And anyway, I've never thought of, I'm probably going to do something else with my life after teaching English here. But what ended up happening was she was taking photos. I was taking photos. Um, and then simultaneously, uh, I met another guy called Nam, Australian dude who was, who was like, he had like a Panasonic GH two or something. And he was making these videos, which were effectively just like these mood videos where he just walked around Japan, walked around Fukui where we used to live and then cut it to music. And he was doing cool stuff. Like he had like this gimbal and he was using Twixter for slow-mo. I mean, he was doing all this really trendy stuff back in like the early two 2010s. Mm -hmm. Um, and I was just like, wow, that's so cool. And mm -hmm. I realized that my Canon T3i had a video mode and why not try it out? And so then that, if you want to say, where'd you start? It was kind of like, I kind of wanted to try doing what this other guy was doing, walking around instead of taking photos. Now I was kind of like taking video clips and mm -hmm. then I was trying to edit them together. And so kind of like you, I would ask him questions. I'd be like, Hey man, like, how did you do this? Or how did you do that? And we were buds. He, of course, he like showed me Final Cut and um, told me how I got the slow-mo and stuff like that. And so I kind of tried emulating what he was doing for a little bit. Mm -hmm. Eventually, that just turned into me honing the skills, like, you know, figuring out how to get steady shots and all, all the kind of things that you do in the, the very beginning stages. But the most important thing is I was, I had this kind of like small community of, of friends, Lindsay, Nam, you know, who were actively like shooting this is like every weekend we're like shooting stuff mm -hmm. and nobody's necessarily seeing it, but like we're, we're working on it, right? We're, we're doing it. And so that's the key in the beginning is I'm just like always dreaming about shooting, always dreaming about making stuff, creating stuff. Mm -hmm. Uh, most of it is laughable now. Right. But, of course. but back then I, I don't know, I guess I saw something cool and then eventually other people saw something and thought, Hey, that's kind of cool. Aaron, why don't you come, uh, shoot this thing or that thing. And so people would kind of invite me to, to shoot stuff. And then slowly, 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 you know, uh, you're sort of figuring it out. After Japan, I moved to Hong Kong, which was a really pivotal point because I was no longer just relegated to teaching English. By moving to Hong Kong, they've got a, a much bigger um, expat community. And uh, I was actually in a commercial as an actor, someone, okay. I don't know how this happened, but someone saw me or I, I literally don't even remember how it happened. But the long and short of it is I was cast as a, as a, a teacher in this mm -hmm. commercial for an English school. That was like this sort of big budget thing where they were going to go shoot in New York and they were going to shoot in Hong Kong and all this stuff. So anyway, I've, I've got my first acting role ever in this commercial. And that's my first, that's the first time in my life that I see a real cinema camera. I see it. It's got a matte box and it's on a steady cam and it's got these big batteries hanging off of it. And I'm like, what the hell is this thing? I mean, I was absolutely, my eyes just, were just locked to it between takes. I was mm -hmm. like, man, I have to find out what the hell that thing is. Like, what is that? Right. So that curiosity was peaked during that commercial. And I ended up actually befriending the DP. His name's Nathan Wong, okay. who is a tremendous friend of mine. And uh, an incredible DP uh, based in Hong Kong, and Steadicam op as well. And uh, this is where it all starts, man. Like he's 
I had a nice person basically being like, yeah, this, this is a V mount battery. That that's what you're looking at there. And this is a PL <laughs> mount lens. And yep. that was a, a Sony F three, uh, okay. that he had just absolutely murdered out with like cinema gear. Um, right. so, uh, and he even at that point was just sort of breaking through to the next level, um, which for him was, was, um, larger scale commercials where he's going to be DPing them. So I had a life well before film. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. So you got a taste of what's possible. You started playing around the, you know, DSLR, you started making some stuff. Now you're seeing, you know, big, big camera and the possibilities of, of that. Oh, maybe this could be a, a possible career path for me. How, how did that transition go to actually starting making money at this stuff or people asking you to actually hire you to do, to do things? How did that go? Totally. I mean, I was just always making stuff and cutting it together from Japan to Hong Kong. I was making videos that were looking more and more, um, like they, like it, like they were intentionally made, like as if they cost something to make them with Mm -hmm. my, with whatever gear it was that I had. And that caught the attention of the people who I met, um, like in Hong Kong, for example, I would meet people and then I would figure out that, oh, they have some interest in whatever. And then eventually I became connected with people who are professionals. They saw what I was doing and then they would give me an opportunity. Hey, we need BTS. That's mostly what I did. Like I either assisted on, on larger sets or I did BTS. But at the end of the day, if people saw my work, they were like, oh, hmm, how about 500 bucks to go do this? That went well, led to another thing. That went well, led to another thing. And eventually that's kind of how it started happening. Now, I was in no way, shape, or form making any amounts of money. And anything I did make, I put it right back into like, I'll buy a lens, I'll buy a monitor, I'll buy a shotgun mic, I'll, you know, I was building out some sort of like silly kit for the time. But, but that's really what happened. I mean, yeah. So, so you had a, a day job then obviously paying the bills somehow while oh, yeah. this was going on on the side? Yeah. And you know what, funny enough. So, you know, when I was in Japan, I was in, I was a public school teacher and there wasn't a lot of chances. Like my office was like the teacher's room and like it was an open space and everyone can kind of see what you're doing. So it's not like I was sitting at my computer, like editing photos there, but man, when I went to Hong Kong, literally I had my own office and I brought my like gaming PC, which was, which was what I did my editing on. And I would like mm-hmm. cut videos together. Cause I absolutely hated my job. I was teaching like adults and, okay. uh, it, man, it, it, the company was crap. And like the whole setup was just, man, my heart was not in it. And I knew at that point that I was only going to stay for the one year that my contract was for. And then I was, I was just dying to be making videos like all the time. And so I was literally editing on my laptop and eventually I didn't even hide it. I was like, Hey, what's up boss? Come on in. You want to see my video? Right. And then he'd be like, Oh, that's kind of cool. But like, maybe you should be planning your lessons. Um, right. So, you know, Right. So you felt the transition was coming. Oh, it was super clear. Yeah, it was really, really clear. And then actually um, a very fortunate thing happened, which was this company that I work for is actually enormous. They're massive. And they actually have an in-house video production team, which was the one that was actually in charge of this commercial that I was in. And apparently the, uh, the, like the creative director was leaving like the video director was, was going to leave. He was another foreign guy. And, um, the director of directors or whatever the person was like, who was in charge of hiring that person had wanted me to potentially fill his role. 
So like stay in Hong Kong, but stay as a, a creative film director. And I was like, oh my God, that that's the dream. Like I would go right. and get a salary. I'm getting a salary right now, but I absolutely hate my job. But how about getting a salary for something where I'm like making videos? That would be insane. So I went really hard trying to get that job. And the mm-hmm. fortunate thing that happened, one of the most fortunate things ever possibly is I didn't get the job. Okay. By not getting that job, I had to leave Hong Kong, which of course I chose Vancouver, which is where Lindsay's from, my wife. And I'm originally from the States, so now I'm Canadian. But anyway, during the immigration process, blah, blah, blah. But we decided to come here. If I had stayed in Hong Kong, I mean, really looking back, I would have wasted an entire year working for like this big corporation um, with super limited creative abilities I wouldn't have been working with like high level people, people who are really trying to like push any sort of limits. No, they were trying to make like really cookie cutter, like junky stuff that, that literally would have been like a waste of time for me in Mm -hmm. retrospect. Mm -hmm. But of course at the time I was like, Oh my God, wow. They have their own 5d Mark threes that I could use. Wow. How exciting. But uh, (laughs) that didn't happen. And, and, uh, I'm very grateful that it didn't. (laughs) So there you go. That kind of speaks to like the serendipitous side of our industry and how I don't know things eventually do fall into place if you put your energy forward in the right in the right areas. At least that's what I've experienced in my past so far. Um, and yeah, it's always funny looking back on some of the things that you that do fall through, and you're like, why did that happen? And I don't know. I think something someone said recently is like, um, for everything you say yes to, you have to say no to something else. And so I think you don't know what opportunity is going to lead to something else, and you don't know what something falling through can actually be in your favor. Yeah. Um, I'm curious because I think you said you said to move you moved to Vancouver and a big part of you know getting started is like, well, where the heck, how do I get started? A, a lot of people have no idea where to start and how do, how do you mm-hmm. meet people? I think that's something I constantly hear. It's like, I mean, building your network. So yeah. you show up in Vancouver. Um, how do you start connecting with people? Are you literally cold calling? Are you uh, trying to get introductions? How, how, yeah. how does this begin for you? Yeah, I knew I knew zero people um, in film when I arrived. Also, when I arrived, I wasn't allowed to work for the first year of living here, and it was really tough. Mm, like, yeah, that's really, really tough. So, my wife had to work a couple of different jobs while starting her own wedding photography business um, in order to support us. You know, the city's gruesome for for expenses and so we we just we burned through all of our savings when we first came here and it was just really rough um while i waited i mean i i i was a good boy man i didn't take anything under the table i didn't try and do stuff for money because i I didn't want to risk my immigration status (laughs) basically like yeah before you have your uh, permit to work you yeah i was scared man so Mm -hmm. what did i do i tried to find things to film by myself again, you know, that were interesting. And it so happened that, uh, Lindsay's really close friends from way back in the day, Richard and Ashley, uh, well, they've got an incredible story. I mean, a really incredible story because what they did was they drove from Vancouver to Patagonia, uh, Mm. In, in South America yep. in their, their Toyota pickup from 1990, like mm-hmm. they, they overlanded from here to there and then came back. So they, they've, they've actually got this incredible Instagram following called dust to glory. 
anyway, what ended up happening was when I first got here to Vancouver, they were halfway done their trip. And so okay. they actually, they, they like left their truck in, I want to say Columbia or something. It was somewhere halfway. And, uh, they came back to Vancouver for like, oh man, I think a year or something to like work and save up to finish their trip mm-hmm. because they were just, you know, you'd run out of money and then they'd come back and then they'd do jobs and then they'd go back and finish their thing. So they were home right. and, um, they actually had another Toyota pickup, like, uh, Richard's like a huge classic Toyota pickup truck guy. Mm-hmm. Um, so he had this really cool one and I thought, damn, let's make a video or probably in reality, Lindsay probably thought you should make a video cause she's much smarter than me. Mm-hmm. So she probably, I'm going to just go ahead and say she probably suggested okay. that, that I make a video about them. Let's just go with that one. And, um, yeah, dude, like I made a, a video, uh, about them and their truck, how it connects to their lifestyle, how it enables them to do the things that they want to do. It connected back to like the brand's, um, history of reliability and, and just off-road capabilities and all the, all the things that Toyota trucks are known for. And I basically produced like a three minute little mini doc, let's call it mm. that mini doc got some traction because they've got a big Instagram following. It got traction because someone at Toyota and like in their parts and services department actually watched it and was like, Holy crap. Wow. This is cool. <laughs> and it was my best piece of work to date. Um, right. I had incorporated all the things I'd l- learned over the last couple of years, again, on my own, no one had actually taught me anything. And apart from my buddy Nam being like, here's final cut. This is what I use. But right. I mean, I, I had to learn it all on my own. So I, I kind of took everything, made like the, my, my magnum opus for the time, uh, which looks super dated now. This is 2015 or 14, 14, maybe mm-hmm. I'm like, Oh my gosh. Anyway, I did that. Once you have that piece, then you can kind of use that and say like, Hey, like check this thing out that I made in a, in a mm-hmm. low key, not obnoxious way. And, um, Toyota saw it. I was able to share it. So now anybody who sees me, uh, then can see that I made this thing. And so now suddenly, Oh, okay. Who's this guy making the thing? Right. And that's kind of, that's kind of the baby steps. And that's, that speaks a lot to like, I guess, spec work and how important it is for us or anyone getting started. Um, I think Mm -hmm. the funny saying goes is like, you can't shoot a car commercial until you have a car commercial, you know? So it's like, it's the catch 22 is like, how do you, how do you begin to get the work? And, uh, I think like you just said, it is, comes down to going out there by yourself, figuring out, pulling all the strings, whatever it takes, you know, boring, stealing, uh, favors, all those sorts of things to get the content to prove that, you know, you you have value and uh, can create something for someone else. Mm-hmm. No, totally. I mean, and, and the, for me personally speaking, I actually didn't have any of that stuff in mind. I just wanted to make something because again, my mindset back then was like, Oh man, I'm not allowed to work. So I wasn't actually looking for work mm-hmm. because I, even if it came to me, I wouldn't be able to take it. I just wanted to make stuff. I had like this really, large appetite to create videos. Mm -hmm. And that is all that I was trying to do. I didn't make a ton of stuff during that year. I was a little stifled because I was nervous about immigration. I was nervous about money. Like we didn't, you know, we were working two jobs. Lindsay was working two jobs and I was just kind of sitting around at home waiting for my PR to come through so I could get a job. But the passion was there. Like I, I, I knew what I liked to do. I knew what I didn't like sitting in an office 
uh, <laughs> yeah, I knew what responding I responding to a boss respond. Yeah. I mean, you know, I didn't like any of that. I never have liked, um, being in an office. I've always liked being sort of accountable for myself. And, um, that's a, that's a really strong trait, uh, that you need to have as, as like a, a DP or a freelancer, really like you have to, mm-hmm. you know, we're, we're all the service that we provide is starts and ends really with, with us. Mm-hmm. So you have to, I, I like that much more than, than being a part of like this massive organization where there's all these different people and different responsibilities. And, you know, you can kind of, there's a lot of opportunities to like do less or more work based on what you feel like. But when you're freelancing, it's like, you need to really just be, <laughs> you're the whole business, right? Yes. So you, you have to get out what you put in. Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. So that was kind of the basis. And then to go back to your, your original question is like, well, how did you meet people? That's, that's at the end of the day, it's like, you have to meet people. And yes, I literally cold called, I didn't cold call. I cold emailed people Okay. Yeah. while sitting around in my underwear, feeling depressed about how I don't know what I'm going to do with my life. And you know what I really want to do is just, I want to get on set. I mean, I see all these sets everywhere in Vancouver. If you go for a drive anywhere, you'll see a set, mm-hmm. you'll, you'll see trucks, you'll see yep. a little circus here and there. And I was like, man, I want to be a part of that. I didn't mm-hmm. know what it, what it really meant, but I just, I knew I wanted to be a part of it. And so eventually I started putting out the feelers for how do I get on set? Well, I had a couple friends at this point who were not in film. They had nothing to do with film, but one of them did some background acting. He was another new immigrant like myself. He was from Brazil, Daniel Duarte. And we, we commiserated in our, you know, waiting for permanent residency. We had the same, we arrived at the same time in Canada and we, mm-hmm. we would meet for coffee and talk about how broke we were and how our wives are like making, trying to make ends meet. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we're just waiting for the gates to open with him. I knew he did some background acting. So eventually I was like, listen, Danielle, like, do you know anybody like who I could talk to, to like maybe get me on set? And he was like, well, you know, there's this one person. Mm-hmm. And that one person, yeah, I, I, uh, I, I either texted or emailed or whatever. I reached out. I said, Hey, my name's Aaron. I would like to be on set. She turned out to be a production coordinator right. and she was like, Hey Aaron, let's meet up for whatever coffee or something. Cause I want to, I want to know about you. Mm-hmm. And eventually we met up and I remember her being like, like, why do you want to come on set? Cause I'm not trying to like fuck around with people who aren't serious. Like if you mm-hmm. want to come on set and like, like, why do you want to do this? And whatever I said, it was enough to, to get her to be like, okay, I don't have a paid position for you, but we're doing a Walmart commercial, okay. big Walmart commercial. You can come out for free. And, uh, of course I did. I showed up and that was my first two days on set. And I handed out radios and I stood around and I tried to be helpful. And I remember, uh, there's this guy setting up these, these big lights, didn't know what they were, yep. didn't know what he was doing, but I was asking, Hey, what are you doing? Oh, cool. Hmm. He just showed me. He was nice. If right. you ask, there's actually a lot of nice people who are like, Oh yeah, I'm like doing this, this. And hmm. if you say, Hey, can you show me how to do it? Sure. Mm-hmm. It's this way. Now you're helpful. Mm-hmm. Now you're like tying up fabric on a, on a, pipe or whatever, whatever it is. Right. It could be as simple as that. Yep. I asked a lot of questions, always, always asking questions. So I'd spent two days on set. I told this guy, you know, listen, I'm, I'm interested in, in, in this. 
I don't know anybody. I'm interested in camera. Like, that's really where I want to be. So this guy, Damien, he told me, well, you should reach out to so-and-so. So he gave me so-and-so's business name. And, okay, thanks. I get back home, and I, uh, if we cut back to me when I'm sitting there kind of depressively writing these emails, I remember that he told me, hey, you should reach out to this, this guy at this company. I wrote like 20 emails, and I don't remember how I got all these email addresses, but I must have searched like Vancouver production companies or whatever it was. Mm -hmm. And the email was basically, it was personalized to each one. I would like look at each one, think about why, why they're appealing. Like, why would I want to work with this place? And why would I be useful to them? And I wrote a personalized email to each and every one of them. And this is from, as someone who has no experience, I mean, I had zero set experience and I heard back from literally zero people not even a reply. Right. But then I remembered that Damien had told me to reach out to this one company. And I, I sent an email to the person who was listed as like a DP for it. Mm-hmm. And I got a reply. I got one reply. The got same, one. the one reply was Byron Cotman. Okay. Byron Cotman replied to my email and it was, he was like, Hey, you want to like get lunch? Of course I'd love to get lunch. Oh my God dream come true. <laughs> yeah. Which, uh, which is, is still true to this day. If you get lunch with Byron, I mean, really like you can't do better. <laughs> uh, you're going to have a great time. Um, you're probably going to order some freshly squeezed juice. Uh, you're going to have some great conversation. You're going to, he's going to order something without dairy and it's going to be great. But th- the long and short of it is, you know, he was the first person to really invite me in Vancouver, invite me to be on set. And you know what the first thing he he had for me was, can you get the muffins and coffee for this, for this commercial that I'm, I'm doing? Oh my God. I've never been more excited in my life to get muffins and coffee. Dude, I was so excited. I brought the muffins and the coffee and, uh, I ended up doing a bunch of like odd jobs on that shoot, like Mm -hmm. running errands, uh, helping me in a PA. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, this was, this was so many years ago now. And, um, I guess what ends up happening is if you're useful and if you have a good attitude, uh, and you're maybe a quick learner or whatever it is, or you're funny, I don't know. (laughs) Um, people will ask you to stick around and, and, um, if you're not a weirdo, it's not, it's not rocket science, but you have to get, you have to get lucky like, like I did and, and then meet someone who replies to your email and then ends up being one of your best friends in the world. I mm. mean, you know, it's just, it's just the, the way the universe works, man. It's, it's, it's pretty bizarre, but, um, eventually, yeah. you know, he ended up giving me some of my biggest opportunities to, to get started. And, and everybody needs that. Everybody mm. needs that. And it's something that, you know, hopefully benefits him. Like if I'm there, then I can do this and support the production this way. And then it benefits me and it's, it's everybody's winning Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and everybody's, um, growing. And, uh, you know, through that one connection, I can, I would say that I made at least half of my current connections Mm -hmm. that I have now. And of course I made many, many new connections that were unrelated. Uh, but without that, you know, but again, going back to it, it's like, I never set out necessarily for any of that. It 
all kind of just happened, right? Like I wasn't like I, when I reached out to Byron, for example, I didn't really know what I wanted. I had a bunch of skills, I guess. Like I could shoot, I could edit for sure at that point, but I, I didn't, I didn't know what I wanted. I didn't know if I wanted to be like him or, mm-hmm. or something else. I had no idea, mm-hmm. but that's kind of how I figured things out. Still, I'm figuring things out by the way, so many years yeah. later, but I mean, yeah, like there were no pretenses. I wasn't after something either. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it was really important to hear that story because I feel like a lot of younger guys that I meet don't know where they want to go and, and don't know where to start. And the fact that you had the perseverance to just, you know, keep sending emails, not giving up. And it really is comes down to that one opportunity that then leads to the next, that leads to the next. And it's almost like a, a pyramid effect or something like that, where you meet one and then from meeting the one, you meet two more and then you meet two more yeah. and they each know another. And it just keeps going and going yes. until, you know, five years later, you're like, whoa, I, I have a career. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's so hard to believe, isn't it? It's, it's a crazy journey. And I guess that just speaks to the importance of relationship. I think that's something that's so underestimated in, I don't know, no one ever talks about that in school, how important a relationship is and, and just being able to be helpful and create value. I think you spoke to that in your story there, just being showing up, you know, asking questions and adding value, I think is a huge one. Um, mm-hmm. Because if you yeah. can, if you can just be someone that's helpful or uh, versus someone that's kind of, kind of like taking, taking away from, from someone, then, um, you know, you're just going to get a call back, you know, no matter what. <laughs> totally. Yeah, man. And it's like always being available as well as something that's really, really important. Like I didn't have a day job. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm obviously skipping over some stuff. Like after I got my permanent residency, the, I actually got a job at a Japanese restaurant and it was a nightmare, but I was okay. like, uh, <laughs> I actually like worked <laughs> for, I don't remember how long, a month and a half or something at this really great Japanese restaurant, but it's a terrible place to work at. But I mean, I did all sorts of like odd jobs. And then I, um, I answered a Craigslist ad for like videographer for this Australian company that was setting up in Vancouver that ended up being like, it was like a total shit show, but I ended mm-hmm. up like shooting a ton. I mean, I was like shooting right. like five days a week all around town. Like I'm mm-hmm. talking a seven S two, you know, wireless lav kind of thing, like total yep. videography, but just absolutely every single day shooting, 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 like doing a ton mm-hmm. of shooting yeah. <laughs> actually. I'm glossing over that period of my life, which lasted about a year. My first year, basically, after PR, when I lucked out, got that job, made a couple bucks as like a videographer kind of thing, mm-hmm. while while also the Toyota thing that I made gained some traction, while also, you know, I met Byron, while also constantly editing, constantly making stuff with what I shoot. Right. All those things were kind of going on at the same time, but I didn't have like a like a job. So, you know, someone could call me up and be like, Hey man, I got this thing, you know, it's 200 bucks. Like you there? Mm-hmm. I'm like, yes, I'm there. And I was picking mm-hmm. up little stuff here and there and there mm-hmm. doing unrelated things to camera, by the way. I mean, I was learning stuff yeah. that was totally, I didn't know how to use a C stand, right? Like I was, I had to go <laughs> find all this stuff out. And that brings me to actually, I'm curious, how did you begin to learn the craft itself? Because I think that's something that's um, always mm-hmm. like, uh, I've, I've younger guys ask me like, where do, where do, where do you get all this information to go to film school? Uh, yeah. like, do I, uh, how did you begin to learn all these little things that made you who you are? Well, I think it's obvious by now. I didn't go to film school. Um, I went to Ohio state university. I got two degrees, one in Spanish linguistics and one in like public relations. And I walked away with just like a bunch of debt. Cause I don't use either of those, but whatever. Um, well, how do you learn stuff? So the best way to do it when I went to Japan, I wanted to learn Japanese. I never studied it in school, but now I speak it. 
because I was engrossed in it. I put myself in situations where I had to use it. Mm. So if you want to learn how to grip, you have to just be on set and you have to ask questions. What is this? How do you use this? Mm. It takes a long time, but eventually someone shows you one thing at a time and you'll learn how to use the stuff and you'll gain some sort of knowledge of it. And you use your eyes and you look around and you go, what is that doing up there? Why mm. is that hanging from the ceiling? And what does it do? Mm-hmm. And you just ask questions and you accumulate knowledge slowly over time. Mm-hmm. I have no idea what they would teach you in film school. Probably it's useful stuff because like, I, I know people who, I know a lot of people went to film school and I, I imagine, you know, you, know they, you spend a day learning about stands and you spend a day learning about tungsten <laughs> right. lights or whatever it's going to be for me. I work much better. I learn much better simply by doing here's a physical object. What does this do? How does it work? Mm -hmm. And eventually people show you or you watch, you do it wrong. They correct you. Right. I did so many things totally wrong as well. Right. Like tons and Mm -hmm. tons of stuff would just be wrong. Um, I'd put a stand away wrong. Oh no, it's, this is how you do it. Okay. Now I know, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, this is how you, this is how you manage cable. Oh, okay. All the stuff someone showed me. Yeah, I think there's something I just heard in there. It's just like a willingness to fail and then learn from that. Oh, yeah. I think that's a big part of uh, when you're beginning out, you're scared to screw it up. So you probably, yeah, you know, yeah. maybe you might be too scared to ask that question of like, how do you use it? Or what's that doing there? Like, yeah. oh, I don't want to be wrong in front of this guy. He's a professional. I'm, I'm going to yeah. look bad. I think oh, yeah, you don't it sounds like you yourself, were able yeah. to, yeah, it sounds like you were able to overcome that and just kind of say, screw it. Like, this is... Well, I had a lot it. of practice, dude, like living in Japan, when you don't know the language, you're going to say a lot of really dumb shit in <laughs> Japanese. I mean, I said yeah. legendarily hilarious stuff when I was learning. <laughs> I mean, crazy stuff. And you know what? All people are going to do is just like laugh. It's funny. Yeah. But right. uh, you're going to learn that like, huh, this thing I'm saying ain't working. It's not doing what I want it to do. So I wonder yeah. how what's the right way to do it. So you figure it out. And again, it takes a long time. But it's like, I definitely was not afraid to fail. Mm-hmm. Because I've been through all that. Like, I've lived abroad twice. I lived in Spain when I was in university. And, uh, you know, when you, when you spend time internationally, when you spend time living abroad, different cultures, different languages, you get brave in, in ways that you didn't realize you would. Um, mm-hmm. And I, those are skills that I, I sought, by the way. I was seeking those skills. I never sought mm-hmm. uh, necessarily, like, my professional cinematography skills, but I was always seeking how to be brave and how to be decisive and how to be whatever, how to push mm-hmm. yourself in those ways. And that informs my work now in, in ways that is, you know, you can't even quantify it. Um, totally. but yeah, if you're the guy who's on set asking nicely and not, you know, like at the right time, like, yeah. Hey man, like there's some downtime. Like, Hey, like I'm uh, I'm pretty new. How do I, what's really the right way to use a C-stand? Like, what's the best way to do this? Mm-hmm. Someone will just, like, if someone asked me that, I'd get so excited. I'd be like, oh, dude, here's a C-stand. Yeah, here's a right-hand rule, yeah. blah, blah, blah. Like, yeah. Yeah, the weight goes this way. You know, you, you just, someone shows you, man. Yeah. Or maybe they're like, dude, get out of here. And then you're like, okay. Right, right. <laughs> you know, like, that'll happen too. Yeah, Whatever. yeah, yeah that'll happen, yeah. <laughs> But I think yeah. also it speaks to the resilience to not be uh, turned off by that experience and just be like, well, but they're probably not the right person. That's okay. I'll just, you know, find yeah. someone else who's willing to, you know, have a nice conversation. And then that's cool. Most people are. Most yeah. people are. They really, really are. I mean, it's pretty rare that people are just outright jerks. They're there, mm-hmm. but it's pretty rare. And again, it's like, how can you really be a jerk to someone who's just asking a question, you know? Mm-hmm. 
It's like, especially if you're yeah. like a PA or something, right? Like everybody understands that, you know, you are, you're in a position where you can be doing like anything. So if you want to learn how to use the CSAN and you're a PA, awesome, dude, you're being helpful. Mm-hmm. Like that's, that's the whole point is, is just being like utilitarian and like super, super helpful. Yeah. And then I think the other part of your question when it comes to the camera stuff, well, what, what ended up happening was, you know, being around Byron, obviously, uh, he and his, his first Calvin were very mm-hmm. generous with, with teaching me stuff that I asked that I didn't ask. I mean, you know, I was rounded enough that, that I eventually, uh, started and also, man, I just wanted to be by the camera. So I'd always yeah. be right there. Right. Like yeah. I was just, I was just always wanting to get my hands on it. And so mm-hmm. I asking questions, being right there, being like, okay, cool. This is how this goes. And people mm-hmm. see that and they want you to succeed too. And they go here, man, like, here's how you put a filter in a tray. Yeah. Here's the order of filters in a map box. You learn all that stuff. Mm-hmm. But also, um, at the same time, I experimented with the trainee program, the ATSI 669 trainee program. Okay. And, um, I, uh, because basically when on that same Walmart commercial that I was on, mm-hmm. yeah. I became friends with the second AC Spencer Kovats. And he had gone through the trainee program and he did mention it to me because I told him, I, I want to meet people. I want to gain knowledge. I want to gain skills. He was like, well, I mean, you know, I did the 669 trainee program. It's, you'll learn a thing or two. Mm-hmm. And so I really went for it. I went hard on it and I did get into it and I did complete the, I forget it's like a month or so of, of actual hands-on training. So mm-hmm. we basically ended up going to every rental house in town to learn different things. We'd learn about cameras, like the physical camera. We'd learn about lenses. We learned about ton about slating and, you know, just the rules, the, the role of second AC, which is what the camera trainee program outputs. You're going to okay. be a second AC when you're done with the trainee program. Mm-hmm. So I got to see for the first time in my life, and I got hands-on experience with, you know, cameras that I'd only dreamt of. Mm-hmm. you know, Venice and, you know, Alexa LF and all this stuff. Now I wasn't like shooting with it. I was just around it. Yeah. But when nobody was looking, I'd walk right up to the thing and, and be like, Holy crap. Yeah. This mm-hmm. is, this is where I want to be. I knew it. I knew it. Mm-hmm. I always jumped at the opportunity to like be the guy who was like panning and tilting the camera. If there was a need for it during that program, right. I just had to be there, had to be by mm-hmm. the camera. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's why I would never be a good second AC because a second AC's role is as a technician. And, and so I definitely kind of, once, once you do the, the training part of the second AC thing, then you go on rotations and I, I didn't even have time for a rotation because I, by this time I'd already gotten my first Toyota commercial. Right. So I like officially dropped out of the second AC program and then, uh, continued on my path of like, well, now I've got a little bucket of information I learned how to do some things properly. That's mm-hmm. cool. You know, how to handle lenses, how to do this, how to do that. And mm-hmm. then I kept on shooting on my own, shooting for others. Right. Being on set, being a part of the team over a long time. And that's right. how I gained the knowledge. There was, you know, just like if you go to school, it's going to take you a couple of years. For me, it was all just learned while working, which is the best way to learn for yep. sure. And, uh, now, you know, I know a lot of the same stuff that, that someone who would have done the trainee program and gone all the way and been coming for first and a, whatever would have been, I just learned it in a different order, a different way. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And it's probably sped up quite a bit too, I think, you know, making, making that leap. Uh, as far as I understand, totally, I mean, yeah. I'm actually not quite aware, but it's quite a long ladder to climb, I think. Oh, yeah. Uh, the yeah traditional it's super way. long. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't want to be a second AC for however many years. No way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it just wasn't for me. I, I, again, I know what I like and what I don't like, and I, I, I wanted to be the guy at the camera. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and that's cool that you knew what you wanted to do. I think a lot of people, it sounded like in the beginning you didn't. So you were, uh, you know, asking the right questions. You were spending mm-hmm. time on set. But then when you knew, you know, you went, you were, you were going for it. You know, this is where I'm going to go. And I think that's a, another big part in the journey is like, once you understand where you're going to go, like just mm-hmm. like really hone in and focus on that. Put your energy there. Make sure you're asking the right questions and know yeah. which mountain you're trying to climb, um, yep. so to speak. Totally. And I've seen other people transition got a buddy of mine who I, I knew him originally as, as basically like a grip or like a lamp op, but he would like kind of swing, but he eventually was like, you know what? I really want to be a part of camera. Like when I asked him, like, are you, do you enjoy what you're doing? I want to, I want to do camera stuff. I'm like, okay. Well, that was like a year ago. And he was, he was great at what he did. Like, like I loved having him as as a swing and and now he's pulling focus, dude. And he's like, great at it and he went and got some he invested in some gear he basically just put himself out there as like hey i want to do this and you know he's really good at it so why not hire him as a first ac right like he's he's great so anyway i guess the point is like if you say i so originally i was muffin getter um but i want to be by the camera yeah and i'm not necessarily saying that certainly not at the muffin stage i'm not saying oh i want to be at the camera because what, what am I going to do with the camera? I don't, I don't even know how to use this thing. Yeah. But I, I wanted to be by the camera, near the camera. Mm-hmm. Well, the, the, the first AC always needs a hand. There's not always a second AC on hand. Oh, I did the trainee program. I can slate. Yeah. Oh, I can do this. I can, do, I can grab you this. I can grab you that. Well, suddenly you're useful in camera department now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I want to kind of bring it back to you. You mentioned kind of the, while you were just finishing up that program, the commercial Toyota commercial happened. And I wanted to speak a little bit to like the the jump between being a one man band and then working with a team. Cause I think that's, um, as you get a few years oh, into this, yeah, um, yeah, I think yeah. at least for me, you hit a yeah. creative ceiling with what's yeah. possible as being that one man band. And then yeah. also the understanding of how to work with the team and how to collaborate is, is a much different level yeah. or a different yeah. experience. Um, you know, as a DP or as a photographer, love yeah, to yeah. You just speak to a little bit about your experience, like moving from a one man band into yeah. working with a team and as a commercial cinematographer. Well, funny, funny. You should say that it's like the, the commercial in question, the one I'm talking about was, uh, it got played in cineplex theaters, like before the movie okay. starts, it was like, yeah, so cool to see my spot on the big screen that I actually, mm-hmm. <laughs> there was no crew Marshall. That's just the thing about it. <laughs> <Right>. I actually <laughs> single-handedly shot it, edited it, okay. did the sound design. Oh, wow. Did the only thing I outsourced was the coloring. Dave Tomiak did an incredible job on that one. Yeah. But, um, I did everything on it in terms of the, the production. <laughs> right. Uh, so, <laughs> so you can create things that look like, you know, maybe like there was a, a huge crew behind it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I, yeah. and and again, that goes back to me trying to emulate and trying to use my skills when I didn't have the ability to work with a crew yet back then. I wasn't, mm-hmm. you know, I was, I didn't. This wasn't that kind of a shoot. But anyway, how to work with, you know, working with crews and stuff like that. Well, you have to have good role models, don't you? You have to see how other people do it. N- know what 
what goes into making a like a good leader because like a dp you're, you're like in charge of the camera department right and lighting mm-hmm. and i don't know man like it it takes a lot of experience and a lot of time to, to get to a point where you're like fairly comfortable and confident in in like running a, a team and not yeah. to mention all the back-end stuff like with the agency and, and director and just every just everything it's a very complex a lot of complex relationships that, that go mm-hmm. into the job but it, it was very natural to like w- start working with a team if that's what you're asking i mean for, for me i just i'm i'm pretty collaborative like i, I like I, I like to hear other people's opinions on stuff if they've got them, you know, mm-hmm. but also I know what I'm looking for and I know what I want. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I guess also it comes down to the fact that like, I'm, I'm not necessarily afraid to like fail a bit at certain things because yeah, I definitely. know that, that overall it's going to, it's going to be great because I'll have the right people supporting me and I have the right skills to support them too. So the whole thing kind of works in tandem and it's really hard to fail if you're, if, if you've got the right people, right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. One thing I've noticed is just, uh, at least for myself, is just the, how much ability you have to level up when working with a crew or a team. It's just, Mm -hmm. um, all of a sudden, at least for me, it's just like the ability to to even have someone throwing up uh, a light and bouncing it for you. Well, you can just be focused on the camera stuff. Like I feel like my work went through the roof, uh, compared to being the one man band, like, well, I, got to hold the camera i can't really set up any diffusion here or bounce or anything like you know so yeah um for me that was uh i I at least found helped me breaking through into the next kind of level is when like when you start to bring on collaborators um and like you said like just just how you started i think some people might be a bit scared to reach out um but i think the big big thing for me that helped is just building community in the beginning uh, finding other collaborators to help uh, whether that's just like throwing them a hundred bucks or being, you know, doing a favor and you return the favor on the next one of their passion projects. I think just, you know, slowly building that totally. list of people and uh, those friendships, um, really go a long way. And, and, and I think in your career as well, because the, the thing is when you do get a paid job, you know, you can also then now uh, you've already built the trust with that person. Um, and they're, yeah. you know, that you're, they're going to be your first call. Yeah. I think you just, uh, touched on an important thing. It's like building relationships in sort of lower pressure circumstances, is really important. Mm-hmm. So it's like I had um, small jobs that, you know, man, I could really use a first AC on. So I would invite someone and they would get paid, uh, you know, some fee. The point is they were getting paid so low that it didn't, like their pressure was removed and I could treat it like a normal thing for me. Like I'm like, okay, I've got like a crew, I've got like a first AC and like someone's doing the lights. Um, even though like no one was making any money myself included, but we were able to sort of practice in that way. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. but then when, when the job does come and then you can actually hire these people for real, then Yeah. yeah, you've already done it before. And it's like, you already have a relationship with them and in the beginning, that's, that's really great. And then these days I have to work with the crews who I, who I don't know and I've never met, but the same skills kind of apply. Like everybody, there's sort of standards that we all sort of adhere to, but you, you kind of learn them. You, you learn them the sort of, uh, in lower pressure circumstances, I feel mm-hmm. at least yeah. I did. I mean, I learned a lot of stuff when there weren't like huge budgets around and like, you know, all the different layers client and agency and production company, all this kind of stuff wasn't there. Yes. So it was smaller scale stuff, but still we, we like took it seriously and, you know, tried to produce the highest level of work that we could. 
Yeah, hundred percent. I feel like it's just like practicing for game day kind of thing. Like you know, yeah. and also mm-hmm. I think there's um, something beautiful about when shooting spec or shooting passion projects that yeah, the the pressure isn't there, but you got to put the pressure on yourself to to make it feel like this is this is you know what maybe there's like five clients standing behind me with a bunch of monitors and like this needs to be done properly. Yeah, yeah, totally. um, so I think there's just uh, a huge huge importance at least for me in my career yeah. when it comes to spec and and you know building up you know teams of people who you can work with in the future. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree. Um, just to transition a little bit, I'd love to, um, this one's kind of on a whole different topic, but I'm just curious when it comes to processes and workflows on the back end, um, I'm always curious people's little like, you know, programs they like to use or how they manage their day to day or, you know, are you obsessed with this calendar feature or this checklist system or this, uh, you know, piece of software that helps you bid or quote quicker or like anything like mm-hmm. that um that might help uh you know the younger guy getting into it that helps you know that help build your processes in the beginning that you know, really kind of led led to your day-to-day um i no i mean apart from like google calendar like just so i don't miss like a meeting or something <laughs> um i don't really use much but the, the important thing for me with basically most jobs is uh i always do lighting diagrams detailed lighting diagrams um and what program That's do you just use like, to do that? I use Illustrator, and I've got okay. like little uh, light icons and stuff like that. And it's it's like at this point, it's like quite customized. But but I have spent a lot of time experimenting with like how to best draw these diagrams, and I found that Adobe Illustrator is the best way to do it for me. Mm-hmm. Just okay. like works with my mind. But why does that help? It helps communicate most importantly with your gaffer, with your grip, with, with the keys. Mm-hmm. Uh, it helps communicate what gear you're going to need in addition to whatever's not on the truck or whatever it's going to be. And, um, you know, you can literally make a count, like say, okay, I need this many combis, this many mambos, whatever. When you, oh, you need these clamps and blah, blah, blah. So you can actually look at the diagrams and decide what we're going to need, what we don't need. But as a communication tool, that's the most important thing because the worst thing possible is to like show up on the day um, and just kind of, have like ideas that you're trying to communicate with your keys because they've also got their preconceptions about what today is about and what we're going to do. And it's probably going to be different from what you're thinking. So if you don't specifically lay out, and I think visually is the best way to do this. I also tend to like write a long email prior to the shoot detailing how the flow of the day should go for them for their jobs Mm -hmm. but like having a map having a diagram that they can follow is so important because maybe there's like one little mistake or maybe there's one difference like on the day after they've done like pre-rigging something you're like oh Mm -hmm. i caught it and that's the only thing that i need to catch because you follow the directions on everything so yeah other than that it's like i don't think i really use anything else like you know, I use Artemis and things like that for, for, um, scouts Scouting. and even on the day, like if I'm, if, instead of moving the whole camera rig over, I just take, take a look for the director's viewfinder and find a good angle and then we're ready to move on. But, but yeah, like, yeah. Okay. That's yeah. cool. Yeah. I feel, I feel like everyone has different little things they do or don't do. So that's cool to just know that, um, obviously, yeah, the pre-production side of you know, building out lighting diagrams is very important to you and, um, you know, really helps, helps set set up and i think that's a big part of leadership is like setting your team up for success so that's totally yeah communication Uh, especially because you're only working like on this one thing at a time with these people um 
you know, they're only going to have the information that you feed to them. They don't mm-hmm. have any information otherwise. So it's like I'm having to a large a large part of like pre-production for me at least is like making sure that communication stream that comes from to me from production mm-hmm. gets to them in a way that they'll understand their instructions clearly and they'll understand what the motivation is behind doing this or that. Yeah, totally. Um, another question I feel like comes up quite a bit and when people are starting out is like whether or not to purchase gear or not and whether mm. uh, or to even rent it. And uh, I'm just curious to hear your thoughts on that because I know it's kind of a mixed <laughs> bag. Um, totally. Mixed bag indeed. I own more gear than I'd like to admit. I think owning gear is a bad economic decision for most people, but it's a good professional career decision at the same time. And the reason I say that is because, well, why is it a bad economic decision? Because gear costs a lot and then it degrades and it becomes out of fashion. And then you have to keep upgrading and blah, blah, blah. If you can't buy it cash, (laughs) you know, you got to think about how long is it can take me to pay this thing off realistically? What really does the market look like for these rentals? And is it worth my heartache and so forth? Now, I disregard all of that stuff because I'm the type of person, like I said before, I need hands-on. I need hands-on with stuff to learn it, to understand it. If I have a red in my cabinet at home, in my office, I'm very likely to screw around with it all the time because I'm a techie, geeky person who loves to, you know, fiddle around with all of settings and understand everything inside and out. The side effect, the side effect of that being, I am, I know my way around my camera, like the back of my hand mm-hmm. and the carryover is that when I'm on set, I can solve problems instantaneously. I know things that I wouldn't know if I only had a rented camera, I would have no experience with the thing. You only have it in your hands for a limited period of time and you're probably on set anyway. And you don't even have time to like figure it out in an in-depth way. Mm-hmm. Also, I can go shoot whatever I want, whenever I want, however much I want. That's mm-hmm. really important. has always been important to me. I've always been keen to just grab my camera, go out, shoot something. Less so these days, which is sad. Yeah. But that's the reality. When you own your gear, it's your gear. You can use it whenever you want, as much as you want, for whatever you want. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, to me, is important. The most important. I feel yeah. secure with it. Like, I, I know that... If I have this gear, I can achieve these goals. But I would like to just point, point out the trap a, a little bit too. And then yeah. I think it, I also 100% agree with you that owning the gear is actually quite an important thing. Um, but to it, what level of gear to own in the beginning, I think oh, is yeah. um, a little bit scary because, I mean, a direct example I saw, um, you know, I was at a rental house the other day and saw someone, uh, I overheard them talking about like you know, purchasing a, it was just like a, a battery charger, the fanciest one for $2,500. And I thought in back mid, oh, it's probably like, a, you know, advanced DP. I should maybe go bump shoulders, talk with them. And when I got talking, uh, I just learned that, you know, he just invested a ton of money into like a red package, uh, but ha- has never shot anything. It doesn't have anything in his portfolio yet. <laughs> yet he was looking at, a you know, buying a yeah. $2,500 battery charger. And so uh, yeah, for yeah. me, it was just like, wow, there's so many other things you know, you need to be spending your money on and putting your energy towards like building the portfolio or maybe taking that $2,500 and putting it towards, uh, you know, hiring friends or getting locations or all these sorts of other things, um, that would way better serve you in the beginning. Um, but I do agree, like, I mean, 
starting out, you probably had a, you, what camera oh. did you have? The smaller one? This Dude, you, you know how long it took me to get a red? <laughs> like it took so long and it was, I, I started with a Canon T3i. Yeah. I had a, um, a five, no, I had a six D after that. Uh, and then I had like a five D Mark three. I had DSLRs for like a long time and I would pay for them cash. Um, mm -hmm. with usually with, with the scraps that I, you know, made shooting, whatever. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then eventually I plunked down for an a seven S and had, yeah. you know, these advanced video capabilities for the first time ever. And I yeah. used that for like years. Yeah. I went from an a seven S to an FS five, okay. which was an enormous leap because now I have a video camera. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And then I had an FS seven along with my FS five and you know, the leap from that to a Komodo or uh, a DSMC2 body mm -hmm. is only necessary if you're working. And then mm -hmm. the work that you're doing is is at a level where you, where you need that camera because yeah. you need the, uh, the functionality of it. So yeah. these cameras are built for set. They're built to work with teams. They're built for post-process workflows. Unlike the, like the a7s which is great for like if you're shooting stuff by yourself which i was mm -hmm. but suddenly now i'm shooting with crews and i'm needing cameras to match what are the industry standards which is alexa and which is airy and red mm -hmm. and it only made sense to get those things when it made sense to get those things but i never even considered not for a thousand years to go get a camera like that costs whatever fifty thousand dollars mm -hmm. <laughs> If, if I was, wasn't even making stuff, I mean, that makes no sense. If, if you can't cut together a great video with, with an A7S, then you've got to work on some other stuff before you can think about getting a, a different camera because they're, they're only as good as you, like it's just 100%. a tool, like all the thing, all the, all the regular things that people talk about are very true. It's just, they're tools. And they have different functionality, but but at the end of the day, it's a sensor and a piece of glass in front of it, and that's the most important thing. <laughs> yeah, I just wanted to make sure to hit on that, just because it is easy in the beginning to get caught up in the gear game, and I feel like the YouTube generation now, everyone's just talking about, oh, you got to build this Komodo setup and do this. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And like, but if you if you haven't, I don't know, yeah, if you don't get, understand the basics of you know shutter angle and exposure and all those simple things, like there's no need yeah. to jump in that aggressively in the beginning unless, I mean, you got no, a free ticket I mean, and someone's paying for it. I mean, don't, I don't know, my biggest piece of advice is like don't get in debt um, unless you understand that you can um, create, you unless you have the work from it. Like I only jumped into oh, yeah. the, the red game myself this, this past year. And the yeah. reason I did it was because the previous year I rented a red six or seven times. And I was like, at that point where I was getting asked for it so much that I'm like, well, yeah. th this makes sense that I can actually start to pay for it uh, yeah. upon purchasing. Yeah. But until, until people are asking for that camera, I think it's, it's definitely not, uh, I mean, even, even then it. you can just, yeah. even then, yeah. you know, you can just rent it. Yeah. <laughs> Most exactly. of these companies, yeah. if, if there's budget, if they're asking for a red, they'll rent a red yeah. and it doesn't yeah. need to be from you. If you can rent it, that's great, but it doesn't need to be. And by the way, we're so spoiled, like for choices now, like basically yeah. every compact, uh, uh, what do they even call them? They're not mirrorless cameras. They're like, yeah, mirrorless cameras. That's exactly what yeah. they're called. Yeah. Basically they all shoot 10 bit four, two, two video now. Like, yeah, it's incredible. It's crazy. And you, you don't have to spend much at all. I think 
honestly, I think you can spend under two grand and have like unbelievably great latitude in your image quality mm-hmm. to get started. So like when I got started, man, my A7S was like three grand and it was like eight bit video and like terrible rolling shutter and all this stuff. Now, yeah. man, you can get the most basic, cheapest mirrorless camera. And I guarantee you that video, if you can start with that, how do you make that look like a cinema camera? I'm sure you can. If you mm-hmm. figure that out, if you start with that question, you're going in the right direction because you don't need, if you have a red right out the gate, it's not going to look like the things that you want it to look like. Period. Yeah. It's not going to look good. Yeah. At the end of the day, if you, uh, if you take a red out midday sunshine and start swinging it around, it's, it's not going to look any different than an A7S three in midday light. I think we can agree. Don't <laughs> swing your red around. You don't do that. <laughs> that too. All right. All right. You got me there, Nathan. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, man. Yeah. I mean, so I just want to, as we kind of wrap up the conversation, I'm curious, is there anything that stands out to you um, that has really kind of helped you in your career so far, looking back at your younger self that you would wish you could tell him or things he should, he should focus on or anything like that? Well, the one thing I keep telling myself now, it's always relevant, is even when you're not busy, it's okay. You'll get the work. It's going to happen because you go through feast or famine in this industry mm-hmm. and... Mm-hmm. I guess you have to be okay with that, don't you? Because you don't have a choice. You're mm-hmm. either going to be working or you're not going to be working. And that's okay. But um, I, ju- I just think that as long as you enjoy what you're doing, and I mean really, really enjoy it, you, like you love it, mm-hmm. <laughs> the work will come. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're kind of not really in it, like you're like, eh, I don't know, then... I think naturally things aren't going to go your way. Things will go your way if you absolutely are passionate about the thing and you don't suck at it completely and you're not weird. If you're all of those, anybody can, can achieve some level of success. There's one little note that, uh, you mentioned there. Like, I think that's this, the scarcity mindset and then the abundance mindset, even though when work is not showing up, knowing that Mm -hmm. you do have value, you can create good work. And if you keep putting yourself out there over and over again, like, you know, do your best to stay in touch with people, stay top of mind, all those sorts of things that the work will come. And I think that's a huge struggle for any freelancer in the world, um, to, to, to to deal with, um, just on that note, how have you found that specifically? Like the, I guess, staying in an abundance mindset, even when you, you know, you talked about those beginning days of feeling yeah. depressed, sending all, all those emails, do you still get that or does that ever go away? Oh, it's No, no, it's, it's, it's tough. I mean, it's still there, but you do eventually get to a point where you have enough people who need things from you that, you know, it, it'll, it's, it'll be okay, you know, is, is the reality in, in general, like, even if it's not okay, that's it. Like life is tough, man. Like, you know, it's, it's just, it's like any industry, any, anything, everybody goes through the same thing. You're definitely not alone. I guess that's what I'm trying to get at. Like we're all yeah. going through the same thing. Even if someone looks really busy, maybe they're not, maybe yeah. they're going through some stuff. You never know what other people are going through. So that's why you shouldn't compare yourself. If you don't feel busy, it's not that other people are really busy too. Maybe everybody's not busy you don't know that for sure. So it's just about keeping a level head about it, which I'm not saying I'm great at, maybe not Mm -hmm. even saying I'm good at, 
but it's something that you got to do. And it, and you know what? That anxiety might even drive you to go update your reel or your website or whatever it's going to be. It's done it for me before. Whenever I'm feeling anxious or something, I'm like, I better go do something. I'll update some yeah. stuff or I'll cut something together. I'll do something. Mm. I'm not necessarily, though, reaching out to people. That's not like, I don't know. I'm just, the way I kind of look at it is like, things will happen. They'll happen naturally. I don't necessarily need to like be pinging people. I know it's like different styles. Like a lot of people do that. And I actually love getting pings from people like, Hey man, like you got something coming up. I'm like, I'll let you know. Like I don't right now, but Mm -hmm. if I do, I definitely let you know. But you know, the reality is if people want you, they'll, they'll find you and Mm -hmm. you'll find them at the end of the day. It's a, it's always a two way street. All these relationships are, they've got to be two ways. Like I don't want to spend time with people who don't want to spend time with me or whatever it is or vice versa. And so naturally, the result of that is you're going to find success with people that you like. Mm-hmm. And then your projects are going to be really successful. Yeah, definitely. Coming back to a collaborative um, point of view, building the, the relationships we build in the beginning, you know, I think can take us a long way into their career and, and those ones. Absolutely. I think that's kind of the uh, one thing that I like about this industry in the way that if, if you need to be a good person, I need to be kind of good at what you do. Uh, and if you're not a good human, you kind of just get weaned out. The phone doesn't <laughs> ring anymore. Just so it, I think I like it puts think you true, in a yeah. puts you in a position to always, um, yeah, put your best foot forward. And I think whereas in a let's say a typical nine to five job, you know, Steve's uh, still hanging around because he's got a contract <laughs> for X amount of you know, you know <laughs> X amount of years, and he's making salary. Blah, blah blah. In our industry, it's just like you know, it's it's a little different. If you don't, if you make a, a scene uh, today, you probably won't get a call tomorrow. So. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, that's true. It's true. It's all the more uh, reason just to be yourself mm-hmm. because that'll shine through more than anything. Yeah. Well, I think there's a whole bunch of good points in there. Um, I loved hearing about your journey story into this because I think ultimately everyone's is so different and hearing some of your experiences, you know, thus far in your career path, just before we wrap up, like what are your, what are your kind of dreams and aspirations moving forward or what's firing you up right now? I'm fired up on, uh, on car stuff for sure. I do. I've been shooting a lot of cars. Um, I've always loved cars. Uh, automotive work has always been a passion of mine. And um, yeah, I just I love everything about it. Uh, and so I've actually been in a weird spot because I've been directing a bunch too. So I've been shooting and directing sometimes simultaneously, um, which is new as of like maybe a couple of years. I've been kind of transitioning into a role where I'm, I'm directing more stuff, which is really, really exciting. Uh, it feels really natural. And, um, again, it's not something that I necessarily set out to do, but was given the chance and found out that I really liked it. So, uh, you know, I'm fired up on the fact that there's like nothing ever gets stale in, mm. in this job. It's always anxiety inducing. It's always fun. It's always mm-hmm. scary. It's always hilarious it's always an adventure. Mm -hmm. Even if you're failing or succeeding, it's all of those things. And so, uh, I, I I prefer to just take it day by day, see what comes my way. And then usually I'm quite fired up on all the things that come my way, man. Like there's so many cool things that end up happening Mm -hmm. that are hilarious in our, in our world. I'm sure you can agree. Yes. (laughs) So, that being said, yeah. well, thanks so much, Aaron, for your time today. I really appreciate you coming on coming on the podcast and kind of just sharing your journey. Oh, my pleasure. Yeah, thank you. 
Okay, folks, that about wraps it up for this one. I hope you enjoyed my chat with Aaron and maybe took a few nuggets away that you can apply in your day-to-day journey. In the future, I'll be speaking with other photographers, cinematographers, directors, producers, reps, and anyone who's decided to take this ambitious leap of faith at making a life and a living behind the lens. Stay tuned and subscribe to the channel on your favorite podcast app. And if you like what you hear, please scroll to the bottom of your device and leave me a star rating or review, or just drop me a DM on Instagram and let me know you heard something of value. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time on Shotlist.